right, good evening, everybody. We were having a debate at our table, Pat, as to who sang, I have decided I'm going to live like a believer. And I leaned over Judy and I said, who sang that? I remember that song. And she said, I don't know. I think it's Larry Gatlin. And I said, that isn't that Larry Gatlin. I know that. I guess Dallas Home. It was Amy Grant. That's an Amy Grant song from back in the day. Well, it's good to see everybody here this uh, evening. Genesis chapter 12 is where we'll be camped out for a few minutes tonight. Hope everybody had a great, y'all have a good Easter? Beautiful day, very fluid day at our church. It was just shy of 4,800 people running around the two campuses of hillcrestchurch.com. And so we had uh, lots of people here, lots of kids. If you wanted to get caught in a traffic jam, you had a better opportunity to do it in front of the preschool. I'm on, honey, so it's not me. Can we have a little more volume, Bruce? Thank you very much. Anyway, if you wanted to get into a traffic jam, it was better to uh, just go and stand in front of the preschool than go on the parking lot because there was a bigger jam of children than there were of cars on Sunday. And by the way, and I never did think to say it, and I never do, uh, so I just thought about it, so I better go ahead and just say it now. I'm very thankful for the guys that work in our greeting ministry on the golf carts and in the parking lots every single Sunday, aren't you? And so the next time, the next time you see J.W. Adams or some of those boys out there, it's not all boys, there's some women, and I don't recommend getting in a golf cart with our women drivers because they are wild. Uh, no, they are. It's truth. You can't handle the truth is the problem. Anyway, they'll, they'll get you here all right, but it'll, you'll have a windblown look once you got here because they've all got lead foots, and you know I'm speaking truth tonight. At, at any rate, you tell those guys and gals how much you appreciate them. I remember about two Easter's ago, I, it was the biggest rainstorm that we've ever had that I've ever been a part of on a Sunday morning happened on Easter Sunday. Do you all remember that? It was a disaster of a day outside anyway. And uh, there they were out there uh, soaking wet, doing what they do. And that's what they do to serve the Lord. And so we appreciate them uh, very, very much. Um, we had a bunch of guests and the tenders complete those guest registration cards. You know how many non-members cards we had turned in on Sunday? 666. 666. I need one of y'all to fill out a card tonight. And let's make that 667. No, that was a pretty holy number. Uh, if it's a guest in attenders, we'll take it. Uh, but we had a bunch of them, 25 of those cards indicated people who wanted additional information about what it means to be saved. And another 16 wanted more information about what it meant to be baptized. 101 wanted more information. 101 wanted more information about how to join our church. We had one person on there that said, I hope he's not in here tonight, I've been attending this church for 13 years and I've never joined. And so I want to know more about how to join. And I'm thinking, well, it's called a Discover class <laughs> that we do about once every month. And so we hope to have a big one this coming 
uh, Sunday as we continue to make follow-ups with all of these guests. And uh, all of them will get something. And uh, those that have indicated uh, a desire to be saved or baptized or church membership, they're going to get a quick call from us. And then we'll get around to the rest. That's a lot of cards, obviously, to to work through and we'll get through them as expeditiously as we can but a really really good day on Sunday and I do hope that you'll come to vision night this is going to be an important month for us in the month of April kind of turning a corner emphasizing some new things and we as a church have to pay attention to some things uh, that we've got to mobilize our church for in order to pay proper attention to them and to get them addressed and so all through the month of um, April, our Sundays will be consumed with those types of things, as will some small group meetings. Many of you will be participating uh, in some smaller group meetings where we'll be addressing many of these issues. Uh, the first one is our deacons meeting, and we're inviting all of our deacons and their wives to come this coming Monday night. will be the first of those meetings, and then if you're a senior adult and come to the um, Young at Heart luncheon, Next Thursday, right here in this room, you'll have your own meeting with me, rolling these details out, and then we'll have others peppered along the way over a two-week uh, period of time. And we're going to start the process on Saturday night, uh, and we will not unpack it. So if you come Saturday night expecting to drink from a fire hydrant, you won't be. All we're going to do is get it rolling and kind of answer the why question pretty much uh, on Saturday night. We're going to worship, we'll have music, we'll have celebration, uh, we'll have some directed prayer time on Saturday night where we as a church family will be praying for our church, for our community, and for various other things, and then uh, we will get the vision process started, but really it's going to be a methodical process where we unpack that bit by bit all through the month of April and into the first Sunday of May. And so come Saturday night. And you'll get the beginning stages of that right here in our worship center beginning at 6 o'clock. All right? Tonight we begin a new uh, series of studies uh, from our continuing journey through Genesis uh, on um, the life of Abraham. You know, one of the greatest desires of my life is to be a, a person and to become a person of great faith. I don't think you just be a person of great faith. I think it takes a lifetime to become a person of great faith, perhaps with the exception of those that God gives the spiritual gift of faith to. There are some who have that gift, uh, but most of us, uh, faith is something that's developed over a good period of time. And it's a very important part of our Christian experience. The Bible says that in the book of Hebrews, that without faith, it is impossible to what? To please God. So just that statement alone indicates that faith is something that's critical in the Christian life. And that being true, um, faith is the element of our life with God that adds a dimension of adventure Faith is what makes Christianity really kind of an exciting journey because uh, faith means you don't have all the facts. And that's, that can be troublesome to a lot of people because I know people that want all the facts up front before they'll make a decision. 
And without the facts, they'll never get off dead center. But in a life of faith, you'll never have all the facts. And I don't use the word never often. But I want to say that again. In a life of faith, in a journey with God this side of heaven, there is never 100% certainty about the decisions that you make. If you had 100% certainty, you wouldn't need any faith. Isn't that right? And so faith is what gives us that excitement. We trust God, but sometimes we have to walk into the darkness, not sure exactly what God's going to do along the way. But faith is very important. In fact, it may be the critical concept in all of Christianity because it's impossible to be a Christian apart from faith. You can't know God apart from faith. You can't know Christ apart from faith. You can't go to heaven apart from faith. So it is the indispensable part of knowing God and following Jesus Christ. So that being the case, it's important, first of all, for us to know what it is. And the closest thing that we have to a definition of faith in the Bible is indeed in the letter to Hebrews in chapter 11, which is kind of known as a chapter that deals with faith and people who were marked by great faith. We're right there at the beginning of Hebrews 11. The writer says, now faith is, which implies that he's getting ready to give us a definition. Faith is the what? What's the next word? Assurance of things hoped for. And then what's the next word? The what? The conviction of things not seen. So you have two words there in the English Standard Translation that faith revolves around, assurance and conviction. I would use two different words, trust and confidence. The word faith is basically our word believe. And as it's used in the Bible, faith simply means trusting confidently what God has said Trusting in the promises of God, even when you don't have all the details. That's about as good a definition of faith as you can get. It's trusting God with confidence. Faith is not wishy-washy, and neither is hope for that matter. But sometimes we think of, think, uh, think of faith as this wishy-washy kind of longing for something that you hope is going to happen. But faith is much deeper than that. It involves a great confidence in a God who makes promises and it's based on the evidence and it's based on the light that God gives you, even though not every single detail is spelled out. Everybody in this room who's journeyed with Jesus for a long time knows that you've had to make decisions based on faith and it involved risk. There was no assurance that it was going to work out like you thought it was going to work out. You just had this inclination in your heart, this compulsion in your spirit that you needed to go right and not left, that you needed to go straight ahead rather than standing still, and you had no guarantee that it was going to work out like you hoped it was going to work out. But you trusted the Lord, and you made a decision. And not every detail was spelled out, but you moved ahead in faith and trusted God to bless that decision. So faith is very important. And we're going to talk for a little bit over this series. I say all of that to simply say the subject matter that we're going to deal with revolves around the life of a person who is synonymous with faith. And that, of course, is the man called Abraham. And so we're going to take a little journey into faith over the next several weeks 
by focusing our attention on the life of this one man. And it has been said, by the way, and I think it's true, that outside of Jesus Christ, the most important character in the Bible is Abraham. I think that's right. I mean, there are a lot of great biographies in the Bible. Mary, Joseph, the Apostle Paul, you can make an argument for him. But I think it's basically true that outside of Jesus Christ, the most important biography in the Bible is the one we're getting ready to look at. And that's true because Abraham was a giant when it came to faith. And we know that because of the amount of space that's given to him in the Bible. It's always interested me. We've just finished a study of the first 11 chapters of the Bible. So Moses, as he writes the book of Genesis, gives 11 chapters to 2,000 years of recorded history. And then we get to the life of Abraham, and he devotes 14 chapters in Genesis to the life of this one man. And he's not only highlighted in the Old Testament, he's highlighted in the New Testament. Paul devotes one chapter in his letter to the Romans to the life of Abraham. Paul devotes nearly two full chapters in his letter to the Galatians to the life of Abraham. The longest single section in Hebrews chapter 11 is devoted to the life of Abraham and how it relates to our salvation today. And you have to wonder why. Why is all this space in the Old Testament and in the New Testament given over to this man who alone in the Bible is referred to as the friend of God? That's not said about anybody else in the Bible, but it is said about Abraham. Well, the reason that so much space is given to him is this one concept, write it down, faith. Faith. He's highlighted because of the preeminence of his incredible faith, a man who trusted God with confidence even when he didn't have all the details. And even when he didn't have many details, he had very few. Now, tonight I want us to look for a few minutes at this beginning of a life of faith by addressing the question, where does faith begin? And fundamentally, both for Abraham and for us, the journey of faith involves two key experiences. The first thing that happens, you hear God's call. The second thing that happens, you hold on to God's promises. You hear God's call. You hold God's promises. Let's take a look at these one at a time tonight. First of all, a life of faith begins with hearing God's call. And that's spelled out in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham, he's just going by the shortened version at this point, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, right out of the gate here, the first question I think that the honest reader would ask himself or herself is, why is God giving this call to go to Abraham? Why Abraham? Why not somebody else? You ever wondered that? What was so special about Abraham that would cause God to choose from every person on the earth this no-name Bedouin sheik, save him, 
And then from this one man began a brand new race of people called Israel, called the Jews. What was it that caused God to isolate this man from everybody else? I know what the answer is. Y'all ready for it? Nothing. There wasn't anything special about him. Not in the least. The first thing that needs to be said about Abraham is that there's nothing special about Abraham that would single him out as an obvious candidate for God to use over and against somebody else. That's just the way God operates sometimes. Sometimes God places his hand of grace on a person, calls that person, and then uses that person for a specific purpose. I remember I was up several years ago playing golf one time, and I went to get back into the cart, and when I looked down, I noticed one of those little bitty turtles about that big around, all by himself, all by his lonesome, out there on the golf course. And I thought, you know what? That turtle's going to get run over by a golf cart here before long if something doesn't happen. Now, this was many years ago, so I had a couple of little kids at home, so I just decided, you know what? I'm going to choose that turtle. And I had a, a water bottle, a big old water bottle in there, and we managed to drink the water out of it, and then I managed to take a knife and open it up, and I put that turtle down in there, and that turtle just played golf with me the rest of the day. He wasn't the most attractive turtle in the world. In fact, I could have gone to pet stores and found prettier turtles than that one. I could have found larger turtles than that one. Um, but I decided I wanted that one. I wanted to remove him from his hostile surroundings, give him a new home, give him a brother and a sister at the house named Whitney and Seth, set him up in a terrarium, lots of love and attention. And I want you all to know he didn't do a thing to deserve that. That was all the grace of Pastor Jim that did that. For no reason other than I just set my love and affection on that little turtle. And my kids loved him to death until the day we set him free down in Swan Creek in southwest Missouri. And you know what? So it was with God's choice of Abraham. Think a little bit about Abraham. He was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, just northwest of the Persian Gulf. It's a great city, uh, lots of people, tremendous wealth wonderful culture, but it was totally devoted to idol worshipers, namely the worship of the moon goddess. In Ur of the Chaldees, they were a bunch of moon-worshiping people. Now, the Bible does not ever say that Abraham specifically was a moon worshiper himself, but we know his father was. The Bible tells us that in the book of Joshua. And there's no reason not to believe that Abraham himself followed the cult worship of the moon goddess of his father and his father's father and his father's father before him. He was probably caught up in much of that astrological worship of that day and time, which was centered right, right there. The last lesson we looked at concerned the construction of the Tower of Babel that was right here in what later became Babylonia. That's basically where the land of Ur was very astrological-centered worship that revolved around the astronomical bodies. And there's no reason not to believe that that was Abraham. So just with that, if that's true, Abraham was a very unlikely candidate for the holy God 
of heaven and earth, the creator God to use. Not only that, here's the deal. He's an old codger. Amen. He's a senior citizen. Well, I say he's a senior citizen. That was back in the day people lived to be 900 years old. He may have actually been a young, really young man at 75 because that's how old he was. But my mother turned 75 this year. My father, he's still alive, would have turned 75 on Easter Sunday. Uh, and we tend to think of that as kind of advanced in years. Not only that, he was married to a woman who couldn't have any children. Now, how in the world is God going to create a great nation from a woman that's barren in the womb and cannot conceive herself? And yet God placed his hand on him and calls him anyway. See, this is just, why am I telling you all this? To show you that it's just the grace of God. It's the grace of God that calls Abraham unto himself. And what was it that made Abraham a great man? It wasn't so much God's choice of him that made him a great man. It's how he responded to the call of God that made him a great man. Abraham heard the call of God and then he responded to God's grace in faith. In fact, as we read this passage, God's call comes to Abraham in really two parts. He tells him fundamentally to do two things. First, he tells him to leave where he was and then he tells him to go to some place he'd never been before. So those are the two commands. That God's call to Abraham involved those two components. Get up and leave, head out, and go. He says, leave your country, the only country you've been used to, the only place really you know. People didn't travel back then far from home. So leave the culture and the country that you alone know. Leave your kindred. Not all of them, because many of them would travel with him, but his larger kindred, your people, leave your country, leave your people, and leave your father's house. Now, why would God tell him to make such a dramatic move? Why couldn't he just obey God? Why couldn't God call him, have Abraham obey him, and then have Abraham stay right there at home? I've known a lot of ministers all the time. Uh, over the years, and maybe you have too, they felt like God had called them and they were willing to go anywhere God wanted them to go as long as it was in the county of their birth. I'll go anywhere you want me to go as long as it's not over 45 miles away. You know, I followed God's call in my life and I, I can't figure it out because on paper I ought to be in Nashville, Tennessee because I know score, I, tons of people, people I grew up with, many people in churches. And yet, it has never transpired. Even though on paper, that's the way it should have been. God's called me away. Get out, leave. And as we look out over our history, there are reasons for that that have ended up being very good reasons, even though it was very hard to do it at the time. So Abraham was much the same way. Why couldn't he just stay right where he was? Well, there's a simple answer to that, and that is because God needed to develop Abraham into a different person. For Abraham to become the person that God designed him to be required, watch this, a decisive separation from his past. He could never become the instrument God wanted him to use staying where he was. His country was rooted in bad stuff. This is the same principle by which later on, when Israel goes into the promised land, God tells the leaders, drive these people out. 
Well, why not just mingle with them? You remember that when we were studying Judges, y'all that were here, amen? Why not just mingle? Well, that's a recipe for disaster, and it was whenever they did it. No, he said, drive them out because this is not my, the biblical worldview, the worldview that's centered in creator God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob culminating in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection does not mix with pagan religious practice. And it's always easier to get pulled down than it is to get pulled up. That's why the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers because you'll have a tendency to be affected by the unbeliever more than you'll be an affect on the unbeliever most of the time unless you're really strong. It's always easier to get pulled down than to get pulled up. So God says, here's the deal. I'm calling you. I'm doing it in a dramatic way. I want you to obey me, but you've got to get up and go and you have to turn and leave because it's absolutely essential that you have a decisive separation from your past. And let me just say it's still true. Everybody in here, you may never have to move 500 miles away from home, but if you're going to follow God, if you're going to be saved, salvation not only requires repentance, it demands repentance, and all in the world repentance is, it is a decisive turning from your past in order to turn toward God for the purpose of following Jesus Christ. So you can't be saved unless you draw a big red line in the sand and say, I'm making a turn and I'm leaving the past behind. So salvation, when God calls you unto himself, it doesn't matter whether you're Abraham or Jim or Bob, or whomever, it always requires a decisive separation from old habits, old ways, old patterns. I mean, we live in a day where many people want to straddle the fence, particularly when it comes to kingdom living. We want one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And there's a sense that you have to live that way because we're still this side of heaven. I mean, we're in the world right now. So it's not like you stop living in the world. You have to live in the world. There has to be some kind of a separation, and you have to get off the fence. There's the kingdom of this world, and there's the kingdom of heaven, and even though we might, as a believer now, shy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, inhabit both worlds at the same time, salvation means, at least as it relates to your spirit and your heart, you have to move away from one place in order to move in to the other. The Bible says when Jesus called his first disciples... Immediately, Mark says, which is one of his favorite words, immediately they left their nets and followed Christ. You see that? They, the fishermen's nets, that's what they did. That was their past. They left them, dropped them in the boat. In fact, not only did they leave the nets in the boat, who else got left in the boat? Zebedee, they left their father in the boat. And got out, left their father in order to follow Christ. Decisive break. And everyone who would follow the call of God is to make the same kind of break with your past. This is where faith begins. You may not have to leave your hometown or your family like Abraham did. But here's the thing. What Abraham's country was to him, the world system is to us. And you've got to get out of it even though you don't get out of it until Jesus pulls you out of it when he comes again. But you have to make a clean break from it.
You have to leave its value system and make a break. So a life of faith means live, leaving where you are, going to where God calls you, because that's what God told Abraham, leave and go. And that's where every true faith walk begins. So Abraham heard God's call, but faith really isn't faith unless and until it does something. Faith without works is what? Faith without works is dead. That's right. And what was it that enabled Abraham to obey God's call? When it was hard call. I mean, this is an example of God pulling Abraham in a direction that required him to do something hard, which God's call often does. God's call often will require really hard decision-making that will involve an element of risk. Risk is not all bad. In fact, I would make an argument that you really can't grow unless and until you're living with an element of risk in your life. And Abraham certainly has to, to do that. Well, how was Abraham able to do that? Well, he, he heard a promise from God and he trusted it. And you won't be able to risk unless you really believe the promises of God. God is a God who makes lots of promises. They're all over the Bible. And I'm just telling you, you'll never get off dead center in your Christian life. And again, God's goal for your life and mine is never that we stay static. I mean, it's always growing. I, I was listening to uh, NPR on the way to church, and uh, it was one of the business programs, and they were talking to the CEO of Delta Airlines. You ever heard of it? Delta Airlines. It's the largest airline in the world, I think. Isn't that right? The largest airline in the world is good old Delta. And um, the guy said, this was just tonight, he said, I believe, and this is a huge company, mega gajillions of dollars. But he said, unless a company is growing, they are unintentionally sliding into eventual liquidity. I don't even know what that means. But that's exactly what the guy says. No, I do know what it means. <laughs> I do know what it means. But you get the picture, don't you? Um, and I think that's true for all of us, too. Uh, there is never a time in our life when we are to stop growing, ever, ever. Man, I'm talking to some young people tonight, senior citizens. Man, if y'all are satisfied where you are, it ought not be so. Because there's never a time this side of heaven that we ever arrive, you know it? Or that we ever stop learning. I mean, God didn't call this guy until he was 75 years old. He didn't know anything about faith. He had nowhere to go but up, right? Uh, and that's a wonderful picture because you're never past God's ability to take you right where you are and still shape you upward. Isn't that right? And so God wants us always to be on the cutting edge of faith. Uh, and I'm, you know, this is the thing I'm, I am, uh, going to turn 55 this year. And that just is astounding to me 
because my brain says I'm still 25. But my body is in an argument with my brain. And I realize you don't have that much longer to preach. That's why I'm doing stuff like Philemon. I've never preached out of Philemon. I'd never preached a message out of Philemon. And then somehow we managed to work four messages out of it. And I spent several days not long ago just going through the Bible saying, God, there's so, there's so much more of your word that I've never touched from the pulpit than what I have touched. And now I realize I don't have 30 years. I might have 15, maybe. And so I got to get busy because there's a lot of scripture that I want to deal with because that's good for me. Nobody ever grows more through a sermon series than I do. Um, and it's valuable for me to spend that kind of qualitative time with the Lord. So we never reach a point where we stop growing. And uh, uh, this is the thing about faith because God has a mission to grow you and me into people of not just great faith, I mean gigantic faith, where nothing ever rattles you. I don't know about, I mean, I'm not there yet. I still get rattled. It's too easy to rattle me even. I shouldn't be as easily rattleable as I am. But God wants you to get to the point where just nothing rattles you. You just have this incredible picture of the sovereignty of God. And you realize all of the great, like Peter says, in 2 Peter 1, the great and precious promises of God. Because that's what they are. They are great and they are precious. You know why? Because they're all true. They all can be trusted. Because God never breaks a promise. Never doesn't not keep a promise. And Abraham had to believe that. And this was a, a former moon worshiper who didn't know anything about God. And yet the Bible in the book of Hebrews says of Abraham, Abraham believed God and he went out not knowing where he was going. Boom, nuclear mushroom cloud of a biblical statement. That's faith. No details, just day-by-day -day guidance. God says we're going somewhere. Where are we going? Well, Ask me that tomorrow, and I'll give you 20 miles worth of understanding because that's about all you and your contingent are going to be able to walk tomorrow. But you'll be 20 miles closer tomorrow. And then what? Well, you wake up the next day, and I'll give you 20 more miles. But that's all. I'm not going to give you 1,000 miles of knowledge. You're just going to have to trust me. And does that bother you? When God does that to you, that bothers me because I want the details now. I want to know what it's going to look like now. And God rarely does that. Rarely. See, God, the thing about Abraham is God never gives him a reason. And we want reasons. God only gives promises. God is not obligated to give anybody a reason for anything. And rarely will he do it. You may understand the reason, but it may take years. But what God gives instead is promises. And that's what you have to hold on to. Because living by faith means trusting the promises of God and acting on those promises even when God doesn't give you a reason. Here, 
God actually gives Abraham a number of unconditional promises. Again, God makes these promises to somebody who up to this point hadn't even acknowledged God. He hadn't done anything to deserve the promises that God will make to him. In fact, there are seven. All of these are basically promises of personal greatness. And again, why? Why is God going to promise to make this man great? Take it up with God. I don't know. But he does. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, jumping forward, those of you that have read the book of Genesis a number of times, you know that's exactly the way it turns out, right? Not without a roller coaster ride, but that's exactly the way it, it turns out. Let me give you four components. The first thing we see here is that God's going to bless Abraham nationally, nationally. He says here, I'm going to make of you a great what? A great nation. So that's the first thing that's going to happen. I'm going to start a whole new race of people from your loins. And through one man, God raised up a people who were not a people to be his very own. And we now know them as Israel. Okay, so God promises to bless Abraham nationally. Secondly, God was going to bless Abraham personally. Personally, I will bless you. Not only make a great nation out of you, but I'm going to take you personally and I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And certainly we know that was the case. God caused Abraham to become very prosperous and wealthy. And that's not to say he's going to do that with you. And some Christian groups look at that and they say, well, that's God's will for everybody. I don't believe a word of it. I mean, just common experience will tell you that's not most Christians live in poverty, truth be told, around the world. And so the reality is that that was the case with Abraham. God made him a promise. And I think there were reasons for that in the startup of this new nation that wasn't a nation. But he promises to bless him personally, to make his name great. And that's what happened. Three major, by the way, three major religions of the world all point to Abraham as their spiritual ancestor, right? Christianity and Judaism and Islam. That's right. And it may well be that if you look over the annals of time, more boys around the world, I'm telling you, John or Joe is not the most commonly given name to a boy around the world. You know what it is? Abraham. More little boys have been named Abraham than any other name. God keeps his promises. I will make your name great. So God promises to bless him personally and does. And a part of that personal blessing also involved God's unqualified protection. So God promises to protect him as a part of making his name great. That's in verse 3. 
I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will what? Curse. And most translations will say, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I don't have to tell you from day one, God's people called Israel have not lacked for enemies. Isn't that right? Man, the whole world's been against them since day one. And you wonder why? What is the source of all that animosity? Well, it's because they belong to God fundamentally. But they've never lacked for enemies. And here God makes one thing very clear. Bless the Jews and you'll be blessed. Curse the Jews, dishonor the Jews, seek to harm the Jews, and you'll rue the day that you ever did that. And history has shown one right after another, all these nations that were at one time great have pretty much become also rands. I mean, I could just list one right after another, right after another, at one time, massive on the world stage, whether it be the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Medo. I mean, you go to Iraq today and it's a barren wasteland. That's the Babylonian Empire. War torn and ridden for centuries. The Medo-Persians, no longer in existence anymore. Their descendants are over there in modern Iran. You look at much of the way they've been treated by Western Europe, the Spa uh, Spain, Great Britain, who alone voted against Israel becoming a state. In 1948, there was a time that the sun never sat on the British Empire, the greatest colonial power in the history of the world. Not so anymore. Now, part of the reason I think that our country has been blessed as long as it's had is because we've always been stalwart supporters of Israel, and God help us if we ever stop doing that. that that's the worst decision now, the, the world doesn't like to hear it because they don't come at it from a, from a, 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 a Bible-centered worldview. But the Lord help us if we ever make a decision, turn our back on Israel. That's not to say we don't love the Arab people. We do. We've got a partnership in Jordan that we go to every year. We probably Our church has ministered more to Arab people than probably any other people group in the world at Hillcrest. And so that's not to say that we don't, we do love the Arabs and we want the Arabs to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, but the Bible is very clear here and it's proven to be the case all throughout human history. And third, the promise here is that God was going to bless Abraham relationally, relationally. You will be a blessing, verse 2, and in you... All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. That statement there in verse 2 comes across um, as a declarative statement, but it really, in, in the Hebrew, it's an imperative. God is saying, I'm going to bless you, but as a part of this blessing, you need to understand that there's an expectation that you, in turn, will be a blessing. So really what it says is, you be a blessing. Jesus said, for everyone to whom much is given, much is what? Is expected, much is required. 
And so God was blessing Abraham for Abraham to in turn become a blessing to others. In fact, that was God's plan, that through his people, not that they would just live in an existence unto themselves, God intended the nation of Israel to be a lighthouse for the Gentiles. I mean, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you, God says. And this is the great first great missionary call of the Bible. God wants all people to come to know him, not just Jewish people. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And the same is true for us. Just like Abraham, God wants us to be a blessing to others, to influence the nations, to influence our neighbors for the kingdom. And that's all throughout the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are, Paul says, my ambassadors or ambassadors for Christ entrusted with the message of reconciliation meant to implore people, be reconciled to God. Jesus taught us that the two greatest commandments were to first love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself and then the last thing he says before he ascends to heaven is you will be my witnesses go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to observe everything that i have commanded you and those represent the makings of a truly great people as God defines greatness, because that's reflective of our understanding what our mission is and then living in obedience by faith to accomplish it until Christ comes again. So Abraham became a great man, but remember the thing that made Abraham great, it's the same standard for greatness today, and there are two things. You hear God's voice. And you respond to God's call with obedience, even when you don't have all the details. And you never will in a life of faith. So we learn to trust God and we learn to allow God to work through us, to grow us, to become people like Abraham. Not perfect, but people of great faith. This is God's word. Let all who agree say amen.